Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. All right, Genesis chapter 34. We are starting a new chapter. A little bit of a review, though. Esau and Jacob came back together. Esau said to Jacob, okay, uh, I love you, brother. It's good to see you. How about you follow me, and I'll take you down to where I'm living. It's down here on the... uh, it's down here on the east side of the Jordan River down in Seir. And you remember Jacob was like, thank you very much, but the kids are kind of weak. The animals are kind of weak. If we push them too hard, it's not going to work out well. You go ahead and go. And the brother says, well, let me let me leave some men with you to take care of you, you know, and make sure that you get down there safely. But the problem was he wasn't going where God had promised, where God had called Jacob to return to, which was the other side of the Jordan River, the promised land. So Jacob, you know, very politely said, you go ahead, we'll catch up with you. And we don't know if he actually in, never intended to or if he changed his mind. But for whatever reason, he never does that we have record of in the book of Genesis. He never does go down to where his brother is in, in Seir and live there or anything like that. So uh, his brother leaves. And then uh, verses 18 and 19 of what we looked at last week, the end of chapter 33 says this. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his head before the city. This is his first entrance into the promised land again on his return trip. And the first city that's mentioned, or the first village, if you will, that's the first place he comes to is Shechem. Verse 19, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father. So we've got a couple characters that were introduced to us in verse 19. Hamor, and then he's got some kids apparently also listed there as children of Hamor as Shechem, a young man or a man named Shechem. So we've got a person named Shechem and we've got a place named Shechem. And that's going to be important as we move on into the study that we have prepared for today. I do, however, want to tell you that this is a hard chapter. I don't like this chapter. I don't like the things that happen in this chapter. You ever have maybe a family that you care a lot about and you hope the best for, and then you find out the tragedy happens in their life and you just, you feel the blow with them almost when you hear about the tragedy that happens or you hear about a family and you know, they've got some kids and you're hoping the best for those kids. And maybe the kids make some bad choices and it just doesn't turn out well for them. I mean, this chapter has got a little bit of all of that. Here's another thing as well with this chapter. One of the things to notice, nobody is praying for God's direction. Nobody is asking God to lead and guide them. There's no mention of anybody seeking God's direction. God is not even mentioned in the chapter. I mean, it's true in the book of Esther. God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther, but at least the people in there are making good choices. (laughs) Here, God's name isn't mentioned and they're not making good choices. Uh, it's, It's a rough chapter and we'll find that as we go. Most of you, I'm going to guess all of you in here are familiar with the story, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. The parable of the prodigal son, you'll recall, is, uh, as Jesus tells it, is basically a son growing up, his dad's wealthy, and the son's not content to stay at home. The son decides, wow, you know, there's places I want to see and there's things I want to do and there's a life for me out there that I want to go and see what that's all about. And you remember how the story goes, he takes great wealth with him. 
he takes off and he goes to see what the city life's all about and he kind of finds out the hard way after losing everything that was entrusted to him that the grass isn't always greener on the other side of the fence. This story is kind of like that. This story is almost like the parable of the prodigal daughter in some ways. I mean, because it starts off kind of the same. You've got a daughter and she's from a wealthy family and she decides, you know what, I'm not content here. I want to go see what life is like over there. And so she goes and finds out the hard way the grass is not always greener on the other side of the fence, and she loses what's most precious in her life. Somebody mind reading verse 1, please, nice enough. Now, Diana, the daughter of Leah, had born to Jacob, went out to visit the woman of the land. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So here's Dinah. You remember Dinah? We haven't heard about Dinah for quite a while now. The last time we heard about Dinah was over in chapter 30. Chapter 30 was the mention of her birth. In fact, if you want to turn over there to chapter 30 to give a little picture of who Dinah is, chapter 30, verses 19 through 21. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Remember Leah, she's the wife that Jacob wasn't interested (laughs) in acquiring, but she's the one that seems to be having the most kids. So then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. And after she bears this sixth son, all right, she gets the record. She wins. She has the most children to her. She's the wife with the most kids. Verse 21, afterward, she bore a daughter. And called her name Dinah. This is the only named daughter to Jacob. We don't find any other girls that are named. We don't know if Dinah had any other sisters. There's one place that does suggest that because it's used in the plural that maybe she does have a sister. But if so, we don't know the names of anybody else if there are even any others. So this is, for all intents and purposes, perhaps the only daughter born to Jacob. All right. So moving back to Genesis chapter 34 verse 1 where where we started. Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Went out to see the daughters of the land. That phrase, the daughters of the land. It doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound good, does it? <laughs> You're exactly right. The last time this phrase was used, these Hebrew words in this order, the daughters of the land was used, it was when Rebecca, all right, Jacob's mom, went to Isaac, Jacob's dad, and said, I can't stand Esau's wives. He went out and married the daughters of the land. I can't have that happen for Jacob. Remember that? And that was the whole reason that Jacob got a one-way bus ticket to Padanaram for 20 years. All right? It was about the daughters of the land. It was about the wives of Esau. It was about these women who are not of our tribe, these women who would lead our sons astray. I can't have my son Jacob marry one of them. All right? And this is who Dinah wants to go visit. <laughs> All right. So Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Went out to see them. We don't know if she had permission. Did she borrow the, the car or the camel? Did she go escorted? It doesn't sound like it. It sounds like she went out alone. In that society, going out alone was a dicey deal. There's one commentary that I read that said, hey, you go out alone as a woman of marriageable age, you decide to go out alone. Hey, all bets are off. You're fair game. If somebody wants to have their way with you, you know, you kind of ask for it. I don't know if that's actually the way it was, but they basically said a woman of marriageable age back in that day should not be going out alone. All right. Um, We don't have any indication that she was with anybody. But anyway, she goes out there. And uh, what would be her motivation? I don't know. It doesn't say. I mean, was she lonely? Maybe she's lonely and she just wants some companionship, wants some friends. Maybe she's decided, you know what, that looks really interesting. Whatever is going on over there, I want to see what it's all about. 
I've been living in these tents with the same people all my life. I want to see what's over there in the town. I want to see what kind of movies they have. I want to listen to their music. I want to go to some of their dances. I want to drink some of their beer. <laughs> I want to see what the boys are like. You know, I want to go be a part of that. And in our families, you can see how that would be some tension, right? There would be some tension. You have a daughter who decides they want to go see what that's all about. There would probably be some discussions like, sweetie, that's not for us. That's a different lifestyle, okay? Um, if you want to, I'll go with you. We'll we'll check it out. We'll come back, Dad. You know, you're you're being, you know, this isn't going to work out, Dad. This is this is something I just want to do. You know, you can imagine kind of going like that. So this is Dinah. I don't. We don't know if they had this discussion. We don't know if she stomped off and went back into her tent and snuck out. We don't know what the circumstances were, but for some reason, she's decided to go to town and to see what's all about where the worldly women are, are living. All right. By the way, this fascination with the world, which I can only presume is part of the reason why she's going out to seek that. First John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 give us a strong warning. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, I want to say this. John 3, 16 obviously says, for God so loved the world. He's talking about the people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's a love that's concerned about their well-being, their spiritual well-being. This verse here, this warning, is not about the spiritual well-being of the world. This is a fascination with what the world has to offer. All right? So do not love the world or the things in the world. All right? I'd say what the world has to offer you. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father but it is of the world. And we hear that and we go, the lust of the flesh, that, that's kind of extreme. That I never, I'm never affected by the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes. I'm not affected by that. Or the pride of life, that sounds like archaic language. It's not really applying to anything that I would be involved in. But really, what is the lust of the eyes? It's, I want to go see. The lust of the flesh, I want to feel, I want to taste, I want to hear. I want to be a part of that. That's what's going on in Dinah's life. I want to see, I want to be a part of that. I want to hear, I want to taste, I want to touch. All right, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, of the pride of life. She wants to go see how they dress, how they act, how they behave. Maybe she wants to hear their music, like I said, or taste their food, or she wants to find out what their interests are. Unfortunately, she's going to find out their interests are her. All right, <laughs> Proverbs six twenty seven has a warning for us. It says, "Can a man take fire into his bosom, and his clothes not be burned?" <laughs> she's playing with fire, right? Dinah's playing with fire here. Your seat of application, your first one that you'll see on those blank pieces of paper there. If you play with fire, don't be surprised when you get burned. Dinah looks like she's playing with fire here. If you play with fire, don't be surprised when you get burned. Do you remember getting married? And slowly you find out as time goes on that the upbringing that you had was a little bit different than the upbringing maybe your spouse had. And it shows up in different ways. And sometimes you find out that the rules that were governing when they grew up, maybe were different than the rules that you had growing up. And you thought maybe everybody was on the same page, and then you find out there's some areas that I guess we need to work out because, you know, your rules were different than my rules, and it can show up in child raising as well and show itself in things like this. The expectation of chores. You know, maybe one person grows up in a family where there weren't many chores, and another person grows up in a family where you contribute. You get involved, you do your chores. Or maybe it was in the standards of what a clean room looks like, all right? Or maybe it has to do with hygiene. Maybe it shows up in expectations as to ear piercing or tattoos or dating or curfew, what constitutes uh, modesty. 
talking on the phone, how long you get to talk on the phone or what time of day or who you get to talk to on the phone. Is that a guy? Is that a girl? You know, those kinds of things. Movies, what's appropriate for a child to go see? Maybe one person was raised with, oh, yeah, that's going to be fine. The other one's like, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Or the material, the subject material of books that your children maybe are allowed to read. Maybe uh, having to do with going out alone or dating it could be that in this situation here with Dinah, you'll remember that Rachel, which was one generation before, she actually was tending her father's sheep. She was out alone. And the generation before that was Rebecca, who went to draw water from the well alone. Maybe one family's like, you know what? She could go out alone. That's how I'm raised, that the girls can go out alone. It's no big deal. I mean, what are the chances that something bad's going to happen? And maybe the other parent, I'm not really comfortable with it. It's going to be okay. Let her go. Yeah, but she's she's my only daughter. Don't worry about it. You know, you can see that maybe different ways of being raised could have played a part. We don't know. We're speculating a little bit here. But Proverbs 14:12 says this, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to what is what's the rest of that? Do you guys know the rest of that one? Death. Yeah, death. Yeah. We're we're not going to see death at least not in today's part of the study. But you get the point of that. It's that sometimes we feel like it's going to be okay, and it turns out not to be. There's a way that seems right to a man. In the end, it leads to death. Proverbs 3, six also says this, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. One of our favorite verses, right? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. And then the sixth verse, In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. I wish this chapter had somebody acknowledging their ways to God. So that he will direct your paths. If somebody would have prayed, dear God, maybe Dinah, dear God, should I go to town? And God say, no, it's not a good idea. You know, that would have been nice. We could have avoided what's about to happen here. Verse 2, somebody might reading verse 2. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hevite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. Mm, thank you, Levette. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, Shechem, oh, Shechem, he's the guy we saw at the end of the last chapter. Mm-hmm. That's why they were introduced to us before. Shechem is introduced to us in the last chapter. Shechem, you remember, he's one of the sons of Hamor. And these are the guys that Jacob bought some land from. All right. So Dinah's gone to town. Shechem, he's the son of Hamor, the Hivite or the Horite. Some of your versions might even say Horite. The two are basically interchangeable. And then uh, apparently Hamor, he's being described in my version anyway as prince of the country. What do you guys have? You have similar things out there? Prince of the land. Prince of the land. All right. So here, Hamor, obviously, he's a ruler. There you go. He's an important guy in the community, in this community where Dinah has gone to. All right. So it sounds like he's got some prestige, some wealth. The word here that's used to uh, define prince or ruler is actually a word that uh, maybe in our modern way of thinking, maybe he's a mayor or a county supervisor, you know, something like that. He's well-connected. He's probably got some means, and we'll find out as the story goes. Yeah, there's wealth. He's wealthy. Hamor is the son of a wealthy guy who's important in the city. The son of a wealthy guy who's important in the city. You can imagine how spoiled maybe Hamor is. Um, When you have lots of money, sometimes you feel like you can just take whatever you want. And in this case, he takes Dinah. I'm thinking in that city, if he's, you know, the son of the rich, important guy, he can have his pick of any of the girls in the city. Who knows? Maybe he's already had his way with them. But when Dinah comes to town, she stands out. She's a little different, catches his eye. And uh, it turns out that now we've got four verbs that I don't even like in this in this one verse. He saw her, he took her, he lay with her, he violated her. All right. Those words saw and took, the Hebrew words there for saw and took, 
those are actually the last time we saw that combination was when Eve saw the fruit and took the fruit. Just as Eve saw and took the forbidden fruit, so Shechem is seeing and taking what would be forbidden. All right. The uh, seed of application that I would have here, the second one that you have there, <laughs> the son of a prince often turns out to be a frog. <laughs> All right, instead of a prince, he's a frog. <laughs> the son of a prince often turns out to be a frog. Matthew Henry's commentary, he says that young persons, especially females, are never so safe and well off as under the care of pious, that would be God-fearing parents. Their own ignorance and the flattery and artifices of designing wicked people who are ever laying snares for them expose them to great danger. They are their own enemies if they desire to go abroad, especially alone among strangers to true religion. Those parents are very wrong who do not hinder their children from needlessly exposing themselves to danger. Indulged children like Dinah often become a grief and shame to their families. Her pretense was to see the daughters of the land, to see how they dressed, to see how they danced, and what was fashionable among them. She went to see, yet that was not all. She went to be seen, too. She went to get acquaintance with the Canaanites and to learn their ways, see what came of Dinah's gadding. Gadding means to go about from place to place in pursuit of pleasure or entertainment. All right, so that's Dinah in the esteem of Matthew Henry. The Jewish Study Bible has an interesting comment, though. They say that this word here for humbled, as we see here, the word for humbled, when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. It could be translated as humbled her. It's a word that means to forcefully cause somebody to submit. To forcefully cause somebody to submit. So you can see why most people would suggest that that's what it means here is rape. That it means he raped her. All right. Uh, but there are a few places and a few commentaries that will point out that not every place where this word shows up means rape. And in fact, Victor P. Hamilton he brings this interesting thing to light. In cultures where parent arranged marriages is the norm, there are always reasons and means to bypass the system. If it is considered unlikely that a marriage will be arranged by the parents, because no way would Dinah's dad say, yes, you can marry this guy. If they fall in love and they go to Jacob, hey, dad, we want to get married. No, no, you're not getting married. That's not going to be okay. God wants us to remain exclusive and pure and undefiled by the religions of the land. They are of a different religion. That's not going to work out. You can imagine that conversation. If the parents aren't going to approve of the marriage, what can happen is that both parties can take matters into their own hands. For example, if the man is seduced or the woman raped, or if the couple engages in intercourse by mutual consent, the question of whether arrangements can be made is largely preempted. Once the girl has been deflowered, the chances of making a suitable arrangement with a different family are significantly reduced. In such a situation, arrangements often follow for the couple to be married, though a premium bride price is usually the consequence. The Old Testament law anticipates such possibilities and gives rulings. In other words, the incident described here may not be simply an act of wanton violence. There may be a strategy behind it. Dinah's role in the act is not clarified by the use of the terms in the text. So what he's suggesting there is there's the possibility that Shechem is attracted to Dinah, and Dinah, perhaps, is attracted to Shechem, and he's powerful and the son of a wealthy, important guy in the community. Dinah may be thinking, I got no better offers at home in my community, in my clan, and for goodness sakes, who am I going to marry anyway? That there's a possibility that this might be a setup, that if they have intercourse, they have to get married. 
and that maybe Dinah contributed or voluntarily played a part. I think that's a bit of a stretch, though, especially with the way the language read, where it sounds like, you know, it's the same word that means to cause to submit, for somebody to submit. It sounds more like it was forced upon her. Even if it was, though, either way, either way that you look at it, Shechem's behavior, he's either forcing his way on her or he's doing it with her partial compliance. Either way, if you look at the standards that we have in the Bible, especially in the writings of Paul in the New Testament, Galatians and Ephesians, Galatians says, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lewdness. Those four words are actually all sexual-related terms. They cover just about the entire range of inappropriate sexual behavior between a man and a woman. Or I would say, nowadays, I guess I should broaden that, <laughs> any kind of sexual behavior outside of the marriage between a man and a woman, a husband and wife. Okay, So here in that writing, it seems pretty clear. And in fact, Paul says in verse 21, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, I'm a Christian. We love each other. Therefore, it's okay to have sex before we get married. No, I'm sorry. That's not what this says. It doesn't say there's an exemption for that. <laughs> and then Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 7 is even stronger. Among you, there should not even be mentioned sexual immorality or any kind of impurity. That's a physical or moral impurity. Greed, which is covetousness or making it all about the money or materialism. These are utterly inappropriate for God's holy people. Also, out of place are obscenity, which what I would suggest would be stuff that you would hear in, in a lot of today's music, a lot of today's television shows. Obscenities, stupid talk, also television. <laughs> Coarse language, movies. All right. Instead, you should be giving thanks. That is living gratefully with a grateful heart, and the gratefulness that comes out of our heart would show out of the way we speak, and that we would be we would have thanks on our lips instead of talking about this nonsense. For of this you can be sure, every sexually immoral, impure, or greedy person, that is every idol worshiper, has no share in the kingdom of the Messiah of God. Let no one deceive you with empty talk, for it is because of these things that God's judgment is coming on those who disobey him. What does that mean? It means anybody that would suggest to you otherwise, don't listen to the empty talk. All right? Anybody that would say, well, that's an old standard. You know, it doesn't really apply to today. It's not really relevant today. I mean, for goodness sakes, look at our youth. They're having sex all the time. Surely this doesn't apply. No, I'm sorry. That's empty talk. We're not to listen to that. All right? Let no one deceive you with empty talk, for it is because of these things that God's judgment is coming on those who disobey him. So don't become partakers with them. And then the next one, First Thessalonians 4, 3, real short sentence. But this is the will of God. You want to know the will of God? A lot of people say, I want to know the will of God. I'm a Christian. I want to know God's will. First Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. There you go. There's God's will. <laughs> abstain from sexual immorality. So what I would have there for your seat of application for the next one is, God's will is that you should enjoy sex, but abstain from sexual immorality. And just in a nutshell, that means sexual behavior, sexual manners of speaking, sexual uh, jesting, all right, messing around sexually, sexual-themed movies and, and stuff like that, that's all inappropriate. The only kind of sex that God sanctions is the sex between a man and a woman, husband and wife. The Bible is clear on that. That's the only sexual relationship where sex is to be endorsed by God. All the other stuff is not endorsed, all right? God's will is that you should enjoy sex, 
but abstain from sexual immorality. And in case anybody has a tendency to think, well, that means I just need to be approved, or, you know, that means the way that I was raised, you know, to be fearful of all sex is, is the way that it is. No. <laughs> if you need a scriptural reference for that, look at the Song of Solomon, <laughs> okay? <laughs> uh, there's plenty there to go on. Sex is created by God to be enjoyable. Enjoy it, mm. but within the confines of husband and wife, all right? Chapter 34, verse 3. Somebody might reading that one, please. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman, and he spoke kindly to the young woman. Yeah, excellent. Thank you, Mike. He loved the young woman, and he spoke kindly to the young woman. So he had his way with her physically. Now he's trying to get his way verbally, all right? <laughs> He already accomplished what he wanted to accomplish physically, but it sounds like he wants a lasting relationship. Maybe, I don't know, is, is she going to be his trophy bride? You know, I don't know what he's looking for, but it sounds like he's fallen in love with her. Something about her strongly attracts him. That word for strongly attracted there, that's actually the same phrase that's used in Genesis 2.24 where God says that a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. That join, that word for join, is the same word we have here where Shechem is strongly attracted to Dinah. And we think, oh, good. Then there's something that can be redeemed here. And, yeah, we're halfway there. The sexual immorality part was not the way God wants it to be done. He wants us to love one another. He wants the man to be joined, to be strongly attracted to his wife. But, you know, they started off wrong. So hopefully hopefully it gets redeemed. We'll have to keep reading and see if it does. <laughs> All right? Somebody might read verse 4. Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Give me this young woman as a wife. Excellent. Thank you, Gabriella. Get me this young woman as a wife. There's two things I want to point out here. The word for get right there, some of your versions might have take. Take this woman for my wife. Get this girl for my wife. That word take is the same word that was used of what he's already done to Dinah. In one of those four words, he took her. That's the same word that we have here where he's asking his dad to do the same thing. Not physically, obviously, not in that sense, but it just happens to be the same word, which kind of jumps out at, at you a little bit. And then here he calls her, uh, my version says young woman, Gabriella read her version says young woman. The word there is basically a word for girl, all right? There's not a whole lot of dignity that's associated with the, with the word choice he has here. Later on, we're going to see in a couple verses he chooses a different word, and you'll see it's because of the audience that he has when he says that. But here the word... He's choosing his girl. All right. Verse 5, somebody might read in that one. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob kept silent until they came in. Excellent. Thank you, Levette. My version says something different, though. Mine says, and Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob went out and bought a gun. Yours doesn't say that? Uh, no. no, I'm sorry. That's not what it says. <laughs> you can imagine a father being a little incensed about what he had just heard about his daughter. And how he heard, we don't know. We don't know if somebody came with the rumor and said, hey, by the way, I got some bad news for you or something like that. We don't know. We don't know how he found out, but he did. And he seems to be waiting for his sons to get home. He doesn't seem to take any immediate action at all. The word there that's used for defiled, I should say, this is the fourth word that the author uses to describe what has happened to Dinah. We have took, laid with, abused, or violated, and here we have defiled. The word for defiled here means to make something unclean. In the Hebrew way of thinking, uh, there are several ways that you could become defiled. You could become defiled by things like skin diseases. Another way was by touching something that was dead. That would defile you. It could mean unclean as well. So it's a word that basically means that when you're in that condition, when you're defiled, you're an outcast. So the author is basically saying, among the other things that Shechem did to her physically, 
he also made her an outcast, all right? She's been rendered unclean, and she has to stay outside the camp. Verse 6, somebody might read it, verse 6. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. So here's Hamor. He's going out, right? Because, Dad, I want you to go get Dinah for me. I want this girl mm-hmm. for my own. And uh, the marriages were arranged. So that's why the son is petitioning the dad to go speak with Dinah's dad. All right? So he's got to put together a presentation, right? He's got to have a pitch that, I mean, what are you going to say? You're going to walk in there and you're going to say, hey, you know, uh, my son that just raped your daughter, you know, they need to get married. So let's talk finances or something like that. You know, he's got to pitch it just right. So Hamor is going out there to talk to Jacob. By the way, Hamor's name means ass. <laughs> it means donkey, which is kind of interesting, but uh, just throwing that in there. So Hamor, all right, the donkey, uh, the father of Shechem, is going out to speak to Jacob. And then verse 7, somebody might remember that one. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the field as soon as they heard what had happened. They were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. Some of the words I want to draw to your attention here. Here the brothers come in, right? Dinah's brothers. Dinah's brothers are coming back in from the field when they heard this, right? It's not really clear in the Hebrew whether they heard first and then came in or whether they came in and heard. So a lot of your translation committees kind of have to make a choice in the wording that they choose. Uh, But just realize it could be one or the other, the way that the Hebrew actually is arranged. It could mean they heard it while they were out in the field and they came home. Or it could mean that they came home and then they heard the rumor as to what happened. All right. But uh, they come home and they were grieved, right? They were grieved. Now, I want you to think about this grief. You're the brother of Dinah and you've heard your sister's been raped and the grief that you would feel. It's the same word that's being used to describe the way that God felt when he looked down upon the earth and saw the wickedness just before the flood. That feeling, that feeling that I would feel, that you would feel, if your sis, if you got news that your sister was raped, is that offensiveness that would come upon you is the same feeling that God had, that offensiveness, that grief that God feels when he looks down and sees the wickedness on the earth just before the flood. And then you see there they, they were very angry, right? The first time that these words or this combination, this, this Hebrew phrase was used is actually chapter 4, verse 5, and you're going to recognize the context when I read it. But he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and you know how that ended. Cain was very angry. That's the first time we ran across that phrase. This is the anger that the brothers are feeling when Dinah's raped. You you can start to sense that something's not going to go well here, right? If the words that are chosen by the author to convey to us the story as it's unfolding, we have God destroyed the earth right after he felt the feeling that they're feeling. And Cain killed his brother right after he felt the way that the brothers are feeling right here. This doesn't sound like it's going to turn out well, does it? And same verse there, that Shechem had done a disgraceful thing. A disgraceful thing. This is the same word that's used to describe the actions of Achan. That's a story we haven't gotten to yet. It's later on. It's in the book of Joshua. Achan was a guy when the children of Israel had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, right? 40 years as a punishment for the sins that they had committed in not believing God and going into the land, right? So 40 years, we really messed up 40 years ago. Let's do it right this time. And we're going to cross over the river and we're going to attack Jericho. And we've got specific instructions what we're to do is to march around the city once each day for six days and then seven times on the seventh day. God gave very specific instructions. That's how we're to do it. And we're not to take any of the spoils for ourselves. So nobody messed this up. 
Otherwise, we're going to be in the desert for another 40 years. <laughs> right? It's probably what the concern might be. God gave us very specific instructions. Let's go. And what happens? Achan takes some of the stuff. He takes some of the stuff from that. And what ends up happening? He jeopardizes the whole community. In doing that, his whole family ends up dying by the end of that story. God punishes the wickedness and the whole family pays. All right? So what I would want to say is your seat of application there. An individual's actions can jeopardize the whole family. An individual's actions can jeopardize the whole family. And I think we had this same kind of seat of application earlier when Rachel stole the household gods. Remember that? Her actions in stealing Laban's gods jeopardized the whole family. And they didn't even know that that was the case. Sometimes our actions, we don't even know what the ramifications are going to be. And here we have Shechem. Shechem's actions are going to jeopardize the whole community, the whole family, beyond the whole family. Reverend F.B. Myers says this, How many religious parents have made the same mistake? They first encamp near the world, pitching their tent doors in that direction. Then they buy a parcel of land, and finally their children contract alliances that end in shame and disaster. Verse 8, somebody mind reading that one. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. Wait, wait a minute. It doesn't say, Hi, my name is Hamor, and I'm very sorry for what my son did. No. <laughs> right? It doesn't say that. How about, I'm sorry to pay a visit under these circumstances. How about verse 9? What does that one say? Maybe he's going to apologize over there. I'm with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourself. Wait a minute. So he's not apologizing for his son or the behavior. Uh, okay, that's kind of strange. So he's saying, basically, give your daughter to my son as wife. So it kind of sounds like he's got this entitled attitude, right? I don't know if that comes with being rich or not. And then verse 9, he says, make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters to yourselves. Do you know what the word assimilated means? Somebody give me a definition of assimilated. To blend in, right. To blend in or to absorb, right. He is saying to Jacob, how about you take your family and you just absorb into into the community? By the way, in verse 9, where it has daughters in the plural, Mm -hmm. suggesting maybe she's got some sisters or maybe he's just assuming that there are other sisters. But he's proposing that God's special people just be blended in, just be absorbed into the world. How do you suppose God would feel about that? How do you suppose Jacob feels about that? Jacob knows that God has a special promise upon his family and that what Hamor is suggesting can never happen, right? If Jacob's going to be obedient to God, this can't happen. Hamor is petitioning, suggesting that something happened, that God is saying, no, bless you. So if you got the world on one hand saying, do this, do this, do this, and you got God on the other hand saying, don't do that, which one do you, are we responsible to listen to? To God. So when God would say something that in your life that would call upon you to behave in a way that's different than what the world would propose, you got to go with God. you got to obey God, all right? So it's being proposed, something's being proposed that if you're going to obey God, just can't happen. Verse 10, somebody might read that one. Thus you shall live with us, and the land shall be open before you. Live and trade in it, and acquire property in it. And acquire property in it. That's not an accident that that phrase is used by Hamor. Why? Because Jacob's already spent a good portion of money on a piece of property bought from this family. So when Hamor is saying this, he's saying, hey, you got that piece of land. We sold you that piece of land. We'll give you even more. You want to buy more land? We'll sell you some more land. All right, we'll work things out. 
But in this whole speech of Hamor, which ends in this verse here, in verse 10, we don't hear an apology. We don't hear a confession of wrongdoing. We don't hear sympathy. We don't have a suggestion that maybe Shechem's going to be disciplined. The Preacher's Outline Study Bible Old Testament Commentary says this. There was no sense whatsoever of sin, shame, guilt, regret, sorrow, wrongdoing, or judgment to come. Immoral behavior, sex and sexual pleasure outside of marriage was accepted as normal behavior. People have become insensitive to the wrong of immorality, to sex outside of marriage. In fact, many have lost all conscience, all sense and feeling of sin and wrongdoing. And then Proverbs 17.15, this passage reminds me of Proverbs 17.15, because here we have Homer doing what? He's kind of justifying what his son did. He's not, he's, you know, watering it down, dismissing, glossing it over. Proverbs 17.15 says, He who justifies the wicked, which is what Homer is doing for his son, and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Verse 11, Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, Now Shechem's there. Shechem apparently came with dad. Shechem's now speaking up. Dad said, you know what? Your family, our family, let's bring all these families together. Let's bring the whole community together. Let's absorb you into the families. Everybody can be absorbed into the community of the city of Shechem, the village of Shechem. Shechem himself, he's saying, I'm just interested in the girl. Right? He says, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. He doesn't show any interest in his father's plans for intertribal marriages. He is concerned only for himself, is what the UBS handbook for Old Testament says. And then the next verse, ask me... Ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. Ask me so much. That literally means pile on me your request. Tell me whatever it is that you want. We got the resources to cover it. Ask for the sky. We'll give it to you. All right? And then he calls her a young woman. It's a different Hebrew phrase. Remember he called her a girl when he said to Dad, Dad, go get me that girl. Here he's using a phrase that's translated as maiden. It's because of the audience. He's among her family. So he uses a word with more dignity. But we saw his heart earlier in the way that he was talking to dad about her behind the family's back. No regret, no remorse, and they're negotiating from a position. We don't realize it yet until we get to verse 26. They have Dinah at their place. Dinah seems to be held captive during this negotiation. And they're basically saying, hey, give us what we want without having to say, and we've got your daughter back at home. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 12 says this, There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. Here we see in Shechem, it seems like behavior that is filthy and wicked is acceptable as normal. Seed of application, if you play with fire, don't be surprised when you get burned. That's the first one we had. The second one was, the son of a prince often turns out to be a frog. The third one, God's will is that you should enjoy sex but abstain from sexual immorality. And the fourth one, an individual's actions can jeopardize the whole family. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We look at this situation and we go, oh, this is the family through whom you plan to do things? And they make big mistakes and they come up upon big obstacles. And Lord, the stage is set, Lord, for bad things to happen and feels ominous where we're at right now. God, we look at this and we, we know how you accomplished your will despite these obstacles, these choices, these bad situations. And we can't help but feel that maybe you can do something in our lives too. We thank you, God, that you can accomplish your will despite our failings and despite the tragedies that befall us. 
In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys have a good week. To be continued. Dun, dun, dun.